This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I've long liked Aristotle's philosophy. It has a lot of advantages. Uh, it provides for real human agency, it provides a kind of natural foundation for ethics and value and all that. I remember years ago, when I was at UCLA, one of my teachers said, hey, Aristotle's so great, if only it were true. <laughs> but unfortunately, we had this scientific revolution, and it showed that everything in Aristotle is obsolete and can no longer be believed in. Oh, yeah, that's terrible. So, uh, so but about 10 years ago or so, I got this, I was looking, studying quantum mechanics from a metaphysical point of view, right? And I started realizing, I was reading people like Heisenberg and uh, uh, Planck and others, and I realized, wait a minute, there's some themes here that are emerging that are very reminiscent of Aristotle's philosophy. Um, maybe people have missed something here. So the scientific revolution in the 17th century seemed to make Aristotle obsolete. Right? It said, it's all just the little tiny bits of matter. That's all you need to understand everything. Uh, and then quantum mechanics comes along and says, well, no, it turns out those little bits of matter are a lot weirder than we thought. <laughs> they don't seem to be self-explanatory. They don't sort of stand on their own. They require a larger context. They require a kind of uh, holism in order to make sense of them. And uh, we need to start talking about not just the actual world, but all kinds of potential states of the world, which is exactly what Aristotle said. So I've been working this last eight years in, in trying to dig into that. And I've really at least convinced myself <laughs> that uh, that, the, that the quantum revolution of 100 years ago or so represents a kind of counter-revolution. It takes us back from the sort of view of the world that the scientific revolution had given us in the 17th century and really rehabilitates Aristotle in Aristotelian frameworks. So that's, that's the claim I'm going to make. Um, so I'm going to start out talking a bit about Aristotle's vision of nature and the anti-Aristotelian revolution. So a little historical background so you can understand what I'm claiming. Then I'll try to explain how I think the quantum revolution is a counter-revolution, how it rehabilitates some key Aristotelian ideas, and then sketch very briefly what a kind of Aristotelian philosophy of nature for the quantum world would look like, how we might go forward from there. So, uh, so in Aristotle's vision of nature, there are four components I'm going to talk about real briefly, formal and material causation, causal powers, teleology, and, and real agency at, at, multiple, at multiple levels. Um, so let's start out with uh, formal and final causation. So, in Aristotle's philosophy of nature, developed in lots of places, physics, metaphysics, and other places, um, all material things have two metaphysical factors or grounds that go into making them the way they are. The matter, matter, and their form. And we can think of the matter as sort of the bottom-up factor, looking at the parts of the thing, how they're put together in order to make the whole. But we also have to look at the formal side, which is top-down. How does the nature of the whole inform, shape, structure the parts in various ways. Um, so form makes the composite material being be the kind of thing it is. There's something um, irreducibly top-down about this. It's not, you can't understand something just by understanding its parts and how they're related to each other. You need something in addition to that. Um, the essence of a composite thing actually partly determines the nature of the parts and the ways in which they relate to each other. Okay, so this is a hard thing for us to get our minds around, I think, because 300 years of modernity might have drilled into us the idea that you can explain holes entirely in terms of their parts. Once you understand their parts and relationships, that's it. Everything else is, is just the details. And so I'm going to try and get you to 
consider at least this shift in perspective and to think maybe the world is such that the parts are sometimes determined by the whole and not vice versa, that the whole can be can have some uh, nature of its own. Um, the sort of examples that, that Aristotle, of course, gives are, are hardly biological, and we'll keep coming back to that. So things like a heart. You don't really understand what a heart is until you understand how it figures in the larger organism. Flesh, DNA even, right? What is a gene? Right? It's not really just a DNA molecule. It's a DNA molecule that plays a certain role in the larger, in the larger organism. So once we have both these formal and final causes, then we have what's, what Aristotle calls substances. So substances for him, UCI in Greek, they're the sort of fundamental building blocks of the world. So you and I, other organisms or substances, I will argue that there are also chemical or thermal substances out there in the inorganic world. Um, but they're not, they're not the microscopic things, right? typically at least they aren't. Um, so, uh, so once we have these, these um, uh, substances, we can start talking about efficient causation as well. Yeah, that is substances affecting other substances in various ways. And for Aristotle, this happens through things that are called causal powers. So substances have powers to affect other substances, and they have powers to be affected, passive potentialities to change in certain ways. Time for Aristotle is the result of change, and change is the result of these interacting causal powers of substances. So time advances because things change, not vice versa. Change is always directed change, change from one state to another, as these causal powers uh, act, are activated. Um, now this conception of Aristotle, the way he thinks of efficient causation, allows for the existence of exceptional situations. Situations in which the causal power of something is frustrated or distorted by some other substance. So that we can talk in Aristotelian framework of something malfunctioning, when its ordinary powers are not expressed in the way they should be. We can also talk about something being damaged, or partly denatured, where some of the powers it ordinarily would have are, are lost. These are kinds of notions that you don't really get in the anti-Aristotelian picture, as we see, as we'll see here in a minute. Um, so the next thing we get is teleology. Um, so again, this is something that um, anti-Aristotelians think is completely out, outdated. The idea here is that things have an intrinsic sort of ordering to future, possible future states. I was talking about today during lunch, uh, or I was drinking coffee, I had a coffee on the table, and I said, you know, the coffee's hot right now. It has a potentiality towards coolness. It's getting colder, right? That already is teleology in Aristotle's term. That is, it has a passive potentiality which orders it towards, uh, towards room temperature, right? And so that already is a kind of, is a kind of teleology. So teleology doesn't involve some kind of spooky way in which the future affects the present. It's not some sort of backwards causation. It's rather causal powers in the present are making things happen, but those causal powers have a reference to the future, right? Just as I might have a desire to go to Austin tomorrow, and because of that desire, I do various things, right? It's not my future state of being in Austin somehow affecting my present. It's rather the, these powers that I have that have a reference to the future affecting my behavior. And for Aristotle, that's happening all the time in the natural world. Ordinary natural substances have this kind of direction towards the future, which helps to explain uh, why they do the things they do. So teleology in biology, and then teleology even in human life and in ethics, is just a specific application of this general phenomena to human beings. Right? So human beings are not so exceptional on Aristotle's picture. They kind of fit into a wider picture of nature. Um, okay, so next, next uh, 
element here for Aristotle is this idea of real agency at, at multiple levels. So, as I said, composite substances, including organisms, are not mere heaps of subatomic parts. We have this thing called biological form, which Aristotle also calls soul. So all of these things have a soul in this sense, which contributes certainly certain powers to the whole organism. And for in the biological case, this includes powers of perception, voluntary movement, for human beings, rational knowledge, rational deliberation, and so on. So all these are examples of this kind of top-down, holistic sort of power that a substance has, a human substance, let's say, has a whole, that isn't explainable in terms of the parts and the way in which they interact with each other. And so it's not a form of dualism. So the, sub, the soul is not like a separate entity that does the thinking and the feeling, and that somehow then interacts with my body. That's the modern dualistic kind of picture. Aristotle's picture is one in which the soul is a, is a kind of principle, it's a form, by which I do the thinking. It enables me to have these uniquely psychological sorts of powers and the kind of agency that flows from that. Okay, so that's the very quick <laughs> overview of what an Aristotelian philosophy of nature looks like. So let me talk a little bit about the anti-Aristotelian uh, uh, revolution. Of the, and this actually starts in the, in the late Middle Ages and uh, culminates, of course, in the scientific revolution of the 17th century, including people like Galileo, Descartes, Bacon, Newton, and so on. So I'll, I'll mention five things real quickly. There's going to be three sort of key elements here. The introduction of matter as such, abstract laws of motion, rejection of form and teleology, and then I'll talk about how, what are the consequences of that for the modern world, again, real, real briefly. So, um, so the introduction of matter is such. So for Aristotelians, matter is always relative. It's, it's, we have to say, what's the matter of this thing? And it refers to the parts and way in which they contribute to that particular thing. There's no such thing as just matter as such for Aristotle. Just matter of this, matter of that sort of thing. Uh, in the, what happens in the late Middle Ages is people start thinking of matter as a kind of thing with its own nature, of its own, its own nature, with its own powers and dispositions, not just as an aspect of or a factor in a complete substance that has the powers and has the nature, right? And so that's a really significant change. Scotus is actually the one who does this. And so after this change, we could actually consider matter something that just might exist on its own. Whereas for Aristotle, it makes no sense. You could only have matter where you have form combined uh, to produce a particular substance. Um, then the next big change, and this starts happening with the, really with the scientific revolution, uh, is that we start re replacing the nature of things, of substances, with, with abstract laws of motion. So now we've got just matter, and then we've got laws of motion that tell us how the matter moves around. That's the, the basic scientific picture. Uh, so we don't need formal causation anymore. Right? All we need is matter, and we don't need causal powers anymore. We don't need to talk about things you know, being order to some future state or causing changes in other things. We can just talk about where the matter is, what the laws are that tell you how the matter moves over time, and we've got a complete story of nature. That's the, that was the, the hope in a way. Uh, this is also connected, I think, with the sort of pragmatism of the early modern period, where you hear Descartes and Bacon and others saying, uh, these Aristotelians are so worried about understanding things. We don't care about that. We just want to control things, right? And to control things, all we need to do is get hold of the matter, figure out what the laws of motion are so that we can push and pull the cogs in the appropriate sort of way. So that's uh, very much related. Uh, as I say, this involves a rejection of formal and final causation. Bacon says, investigating teleology, investigating natures and causal powers and so on, all of this is, is intercepted the severe and diligent inquiry of real and physical causes. So it's, it's getting in the way of 
really effective scientific research. Uh, because understanding teleology in essence yields no control. Uh, and French biologist Claude Bernard has a good example of this. He says the final cause does not intervene as an actual and efficacious law of nature. So notice how Bernard is assuming that what science is after are laws of nature. So if we don't find a law of nature connecting to teleology, then there is no teleology, right? That's, that's the basic uh, modern move here. So what's the result of this revolution, this change, this move away from Aristotle? Initially, what it gives us is a dualistic or fragmented world. Because right? we've got, now we have matter moving according to mathematical laws of motion. And then we've got living things and people with thoughts and feelings and so on, right? It's really hard initially to see how those two worlds relate to each other. And so Descartes and others say, well, there's just two domains. There's the world of matter, and then there's the world of mind. And the mind is some separate sort of thing. There's these separate mental entities. And then the problem is, how do you get these two worlds together again? Right? How does the world of mind interact with the world of matter? Uh, eventually, the problem, of course, is that it's harder and harder to find a place where, where these disembodied souls can impinge upon, upon matter. We learn more and more about how the brain works, how brain chemistry works. There doesn't seem to be any room for you know, immaterial Descartesian souls to be doing anything. And so eventually we end up with a kind of, uh, I would say, soul of the gaps problem. That is, the soul is immediately introduced to give us agency and experience and so on. But eventually as science progresses, we sort of push the soul further and further out of the picture until finally late 19th century it just disappeared. Right? There is just matter in motion, and that's the, that's the whole story. Um, and this gives us a kind of bottom-up reductionist narrative. So political and social scientists, scientists reduce to psych, individual psychology. That reduces to biology. Biology reduces to chemistry. Chemistry to atomic physics. Atomic physics to particle physics. So that ultimately, the whole story of the world is particle physics. Um, Rutherford, great physicist, said this one point. He says, all of science is either particle physics or stamp collecting. So everything else is just kind of arranging facts on the page. But the, the real science is occurring at the particle physics kind of level. And that's essentially where we're left. Um, so when, let me say something about the quantum revolution. So I'll talk about four features, four, or four ways in which quantum theory revives crucial elements of the Aristotelian story and subverts the modernist uh, narrative I've just talked about of matter and motion, you know, governed by purely quantitative mo moves. First of all, the revenge of, of teleology. So, um, classical mechanics can be formulated in one of two ways, either in terms of differential equations based on Newton's laws of motion, F equals MA, and the parallelogram of forces and that sort of thing, or in terms of integral equations in the conservation of energy, so the analytic or Hamiltonian kind of method. And already um, Leibniz noted and argued that the second of these, which, which appeals usually to things like principles of least action, or principles of uh, local or maximal minimum of some kind. He said, look, that's teleological, actually, right? Because you're explaining the present behavior of the system in terms of some future trajectory, which is the best trajectory for it to take. And the standard modern response to Leibniz was to say, yeah, but that's just useful, right? That's just kind of a useful fiction. It's, it's a convenient way of calculating, but it's the Newtonian stuff that's determining what's really going on. That's the metaphysical reality, right? So the teleology stuff, kind of a useful, convenient mechanism, but metaphysical reality is non-teleological. It's just, it's just forces and matter you know, being driven by these laws. Um, but this turns out not to work because once you get to quantum mechanics, this, a lot of people haven't noticed this. It's all integral equations in the Hamiltonian method now. We're not using the kind of Newtonian mechanics anymore. We don't have 
definite, we don't have particles of definite positions being pushed and pulled around by forces. We have, you know, systems which are moving according to least action principles. Uh, Feynman's uh, uh, sum over histories, for example, is a perfect example of this. It's the modern version of this Leibnizian and, uh, least action principle. Uh, and uh, this, is noticed, this was noticed by some uh, of the, oops, sorry, by some people, uh, Planck in particular, Max Planck in a couple places says, wow, you know, quantum mechanics is actually put teleology back in the picture, right? As not just as a useful device, but as a metaphysically fundamental part of nature. And I think that's right. Uh, second thing, and this is a very important part of quantum mechanics, is what are called non-separable states, or sometimes people talk about entanglement. So again, the modernist picture is one in which it's all bottom up. You tell me where the individual particles are and how they're moving relative to each other, and that determines everything else. But quantum mechanics says that there are lots of cases where the individual particles don't have any property in and of themselves at all. They only have physical properties as part of a larger system, as part of this larger entangled system. Uh, Schrodinger says this is the most, most crucial thing. It's a revolutionary concept that uh, enforces its entire departure from classical lines of thought. So, so when two systems are, are quantum entangled, the quantum state determines their properties in a way that cannot be decomposed into the product of the properties of the individual parts. Right? So literally, the whole is more than the sum of the parts when you're dealing with an entangled system. And this is very much in, in line with Aristotelian expectations. So I'll spend a few minutes just talking about this because I think it's kind of interesting. Um, in the EPR, Einstein, um, Pol uh, what's his name again? Um, Polsky Rosen, I think that's right. Anyway, thought experiment is one in which you, um, you have a source that creates a pair of particles, let's say a pair of electrons, and sends them off in two directions. And uh, this, the source is set up in such a way that the two particles are actually perfectly anti-correlated. So if one is spin up in a certain direction, the other one will be spin down in that same, in that same dimension. Okay? And um, it turns out that the, um, the results of this, oops, I screwed up my equation there. Uh, that's, not, that's not the actual equation, but the, the point is that uh, systems of this kind uh, typically end up in what's called a superposed state. That is, it's a state where you can't say this particle is spin up and this one is spin down. Instead, it's a mixture of states. Partly it's this up and this down, and partly it's the other way around, right? Both states somehow have a kind of reality. And this superposition then affects the way in which the statistics come out at the two points at which we observe the experiment. Again, in a way that cannot be explained uh, in terms of, let's say, bottom-up material causation. That's what I'm saying. So, so again, here's the source. It sends out the particle in two directions. We then decide at these two observers, at these two observation posts, whether to observe the spin in x, y, or the z dimensions. We have, we have three axes. We have three possible ways to observe the particle. And we can imagine cases where these two observation posts are very, very far apart, right? And uh, so, and they're happening at more or less the same time. So anyway, in relativistic terms, the point is you can't get a signal from one to the other, right? Uh, they're, they're um, what is the term? Space-like separated from each other in, in relativistic terms, right? And then what turns out is this, namely that, um, uh, let's see here. Oops, 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 it's going too far now. Uh, yeah, so uh, David Merman had this really nice article in Journal of Philosophy in 1981, so I'll, I'll use that to kind of illustrate this, because it, it's, it's a real quick way to 
help you to see what the quantum weirdness is here and why it really forces us into entangled states. So, um, so in, in, again, here's the same picture. You have a source that sends out the particle to two observation posts, A and B, right? And at each, at each observation post, the experimenter has a setting. You can either set it to one, two, or three, so that will observe either the x, y, or the z dimension of the particle, right? And then we observe whether the particle is up or down, and that gives us red or green lights. And the way Merman sets these things up, you reverse the polarity on one of these, so that means that, it, that they will both turn up red or they both turn up green, right? In other words, if, if one's been up and it's been down, they'll both go red. If it's the other way around, they'll both turn green, so you just reverse the settings. This makes things a little bit simpler to think about. Uh, so here's what happens, in fact. If the A and B settings are the same, so both experimenters decide to observe one together, or two together, or three together, they always get exactly the same lights showing up, right? Red, green, or whatever, right? So they all, the two sides always agree with each other, which suggests, right, that when the particles leave the source, they've already got the sort of instructions that tell us if, it's gonna, if they check dimension one, go red, right, or, or go, go, go green, right? Those instructions are already there, so to speak, because otherwise, how do you explain the perfect correlation? between the two when we observe on either side. But then here's the part where it gets weird. If the two experimenters set, put the settings at different numbers, one and three, two and three, one and three, one and two, the two detectors will display the, display the same color only 25% of the time. Now you might not go, that's not so weird, but I'll show you why it's weird. Uh, Bell, Bell proved in 1964 that if the two outcomes are separable, it is, we can actually say that there are two particles with two sort of separate states in this case, and there's no funny communication between the two particles, then if A is true, then in the case of B, they should agree at least one-third of the time. Shouldn't agree only 25% of the time. Something spooky is going on here. Here's the actual table that shows that. So, uh, so again, this is, this is, these are all the different cases where the settings are different. One and two, one and three, two and three, right? Here are all the possible sort of instructions the particle can get from the source. If, if it's red, 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 or green, 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 then of course the two, the two observations will get exactly the same answer, green, no matter what the settings are, right? And in the other cases, like in this case, if it's red, red, green, then if the settings are one and two, then I'll get red in both cases will agree, right? If it's two and three, these two cases we won't, right? But in any case, you'll notice that in each of these eight possible instructions, we're either gonna agree with 100% of the time or 33% of the time. There's no way it can get to 25%. And there's no way you can average these numbers together by any kind of indeterministic mechanism that sort of chooses the original instructions. You get the average come out 25%. You just can't average, you can't average 33%, 33%, 100%, and get 25. So what it shows is that you can't treat the two particles as two separate things, getting some kind of instruction from a common source. They're part of, from an Aristotelian point of view, they're somehow part of a single uh, indivisible substance, right? Which is, which is expressing itself, exercising some kind of power at these two uh, remote sites. Otherwise, you'd have to suppose that there's some kind of uh, communication at a distance going on, which would be contrary to, to relativity theory. So again, this is Bell's theorem, which is basically saying um, the results you get at point A, the probability of those results, given, yeah, this is supposed to be a lambda, given the complete information about the common cause, whatever came out of this source, those statistics should be independent of whatever you get at the other side, the B results, right? And these are both, both these, well, these equalities are, are, are uh, violated by the actual results. 
most of my thought experiment. And then Aspect and others have actually done experiments along these lines to confirm that Einstein was right, uh, that you get these weird results. Okay. So again, that shows um, that if we uh, try to think of these two as somehow influencing each other causally, we violate the theory of relativity. So therefore, we have to think of the two widely separated particles as forming one undivided whole. It's really the only option to make sense of it. And that's pushing us in an, in an Aristotelian sort of direction. Okay, third sort of issue is the measurement problem. Um, so pure quantum mechanics rarely, if ever, assigns a definite property to any particle. And it never assigns definite values to all the parameters for a given part particle. Right? So it gives it a, a quantum state, which in, at least in some parameters, some properties, so-called observables, are uh, uh, indefinite in, in nature. Uh, and so in effect, what the theory does is it assigns probabilities to certain experimental outcomes. So it doesn't tell you where the particle is. It tells you what are the probabilities you will find it here or there. Right? That, that's all the theory actually tells you, gives you probabilities of that kind. But the theory itself is completely silent on what this measurement means that you will find or you will measure the particles here or there. What does that mean? And the measurement problem says it's really a problem for the microphysicalist, for the anti-Aristotelian, right? For the one who thinks that the world is, is just matter in motion. Because if that's your assumption, right, then the measurement device, whatever that is, is itself made up of quantum particles. Right? Quantum theory says these quantum particles never have definite positions and locations. Therefore, the measurement device can't have any definite state or definite uh, uh, position. Therefore, the probability that you'll get a definite result is zero because measurement devices, like everything else in the quantum world, would be constantly in an indeterminate state. And yet quantum theory says there's a certain probability you will get a definite result when you do the measurement, right? So there seems to be a kind of contradiction, I say, a contradiction between quantum mechanics and microphysicalism, between that and any kind of materialism. What we really need to do is somehow or other think of the world in which the measurements are taking place the world of you and me and our instrumental devices as existing somehow independently of the quantum world, right? As a kind of separate domain, at least initially. That was, uh, in fact, that was Bohr's uh, suggestion. I'll just, you know, just illustrate this. I'll, I'll run through the Schrodinger cat kind of situation again. So if we assume the measurement devices, which consists of macroscopic instruments or observers like you and me, if we assume that we are wholly composed of quantum particles, and our nature as observers is clearly determined by the quantum particles. We get a contradiction. So here's the, here's the story, right? You've got a cat. There's some kind of quantum event that it can occur, like some radium atom decaying. If it happens, then the bottle is broken. The cat is, is, dies from poison gas. If it doesn't happen, the cat's alive, right? What quantum mechanics tells us is that in this kind of situation, the quantum system up here goes into what's called the superposed state where the atom is both decayed and not decayed simultaneously, right? And then that means that the hammer and the glass also go into superposed states, where they're both fallen and not fallen, broken and not broken, which means the cat is in a superposed state of being both alive and dead, no definite result, until we open the, the box and actually observe the cat, right? And then, then suddenly the, the, cat, the cat state collapses, as they put it, into either alive or dead. That's the theory anyway. But of course, the problem with that, that uh, Eugene, Eugene Binger pointed out, is that you get a kind of infinite regress, right? So suppose you've got, again, this state that's indeterminate, and the person finally observes it all cat alive or cat dead. So now we get a definite result. 
But then you put the observer inside the box, right? And now the same thing's gonna happen to the observer, right? The observer goes into a superposed state of both seeing the cat alive and not seeing the cat alive until some other observer sees him. And then the whole thing collapses. Well, wait a minute, he could be in another box, right? And so the problem is, the measurement problem sort of leads to this insoluble kind of redress where we're trapped in indeterminacy, right? We can never actually get to a definite result. That, that's essentially the measurement problem. So again, what's the, um, well, I'll just, before I get to Aristotle, let me give the uh, Everett answer from the time timewise, okay? I'll have to wrap this up pretty quick. Um, the Everett Many Worlds answer says that when this happens, what actually happens is that the world splits into two versions. They both are real. So the cat's alive and the cat's dead. The man observes the cat alive and the man observes the cat dead. The other man observes the man observing the cat alive. The other one observes the man observing the cat And so on. So everything, everything kind of splits into two worlds. Um, so this is the kind of problem that you're forced to if you're going to hold on to materialism, come what may, in the face of the measurement problem. But you can see that this, this leads to a number of serious problems. Um, and I'm going to run over this real quickly. Um, yeah, so again, here's the picture. The world splits, dead cat, live cat, both equally real. But um, the problem, first of all, is they can't explain the meaning of the probabilities that are associated with the different branches. So again, suppose the cat splits, and suppose the quantum theory says one quarter probability, three quarters probability. What does that mean? I mean, from the Everettian point of view, the many worlds point of view, they both have the probability of one. So where does the, where does the 25, 75% probability come into? This is still an unsolved problem. I mean, Oxford people have tried to solve this problem. I've got a, a chapter in which I think I show that their solution doesn't work, but that's an open problem. The other big problem for the Oxford Everettians is um, they can't really explain what it is for our familiar world to be emergent from quantum operations. And so they, their solution is to say, that if you can come up with a, a kind of projection of a description of our, of our macroscopic world into the quantum world, that's all, it needs, all that, that's all it needs for our world to be real and for us to be observing things and doing things, right? And the problem, again, I showed this in a chapter a couple years ago, is that you can take any consistent story whatsoever and project it onto the quantum wave function, and you get a real world according to the Oxford Everettians. So if, if Lord of the Rings is a consistent story, or the Homer's story of the gods is a consistent story, there's a way to project that onto the quantum wave function, and that would be another emergent world just as real as our, as our macroscopic world. And so that seems pretty bizarre. Um, the Aristotelian answer here is to say, no, look, there's, in nature, there's a fixed number of essences or natures that enable a world to emerge from the macroscopic matter. It's, this, it's the Aristotelian forms, right? that determine what kind of world can emerge from this quantum, this quantum flux. Uh, donkeys, ice, water, yes. Elves, mithril, dragons, no. Right, so there's a, a limited kind of repertoire of forms. And moreover, and this is a really crucial thing, the forms then can, can actually pick out which of the Everettian worlds is the actual world. I mean, I think what's, what's really happened here is the many worlds people are faced with this, many, with this indeterminacy in quantum mechanics. And they've lost the distinction in Aristotle between the actual and the potential. And so they have to treat all the worlds as equally actual, equally real. If we go back to Aristotle, we'd realize, no, they're all equally potential, but one of them is actual. And what's, what is it that makes that world actual? Nothing at the microscopic level, right? Because that's indeterminate. It has to be something macroscopic. It has to be a form that somehow picks which, which of those uh, paths is actually the real one. So this is where you get something like free choice, right? Uh, the, the quantum system that makes up my body throws up some indeterminacy. 
that you can go this way or that way. Uh, I determined I'm going to go that way, right? And that doesn't require any kind of spooky interaction. I don't have to violate conservation energy. I don't have to push the particles around in my brain. I'm just exploiting the fact that the, the quantum world is indeterminate, right? And I'm making it determinate in one way or rather than another through exercising my free will. And then finally, the last thing is the reification potentiality, which is also you kind of touched on this. So in Aristotle's metaphysics, you know, there is such a thing as potentiality. And that, and that is tied up crucially with teleology again. What modern science did was it tried to eliminate potentiality. It said, look, there's just the actual world. There's just matter and how matter actually moves. And then there's laws of nature that describe that. And every kind of potentiality from the modern point of view was just a kind of thought experiment or an imagination or something like that. It wasn't something real. Quantum mechanics, and Heisenberg points this out in 58, Heisenberg forces us to reify the potentialities. Right? In order to make sense of what's going on, I can't just look at where the particle actually goes. I have to look at all the possible paths that the particle could take. Those, all those potential paths play a role in explaining the physical phenomena. And so that, again, rehabilitates a crucial part of the Aristotelian story. Okay, so you know, I'll, time, so I'll sort of wrap this up. But basically, by restoring potentiality, teleology, and holism, quantum mechanics reopens the question of the efficacy of sensation, desire, and rational thought. So if, if, at the, if we can have substantial form, Aristotelian form, you know, making things determinate enough to give meaning to quantum mechanics. There's no reason why substantial form couldn't be doing the same thing at the level of biology as well. Um, so, uh, so in order to explain the solvement of the problem, we have to bring back Aristotelian form, and that um, really puts us back on the path towards uh, the, the future. Um, we've got a couple quotes here from Nancy Cartwright and Paul Robin, just saying that from, a, from what what. Aristotelians do is they take quantum mechanics seriously as described in the real world. Right? They're not dismissing quantum mechanics at all. They are denying that it's the complete story of the physical world. And I think that's the lesson of quantum mechanics. You can't do that. You can't take it as the complete story. There has to be more going on. And uh, what Aristotelians do is add, I think, the crucial missing element here, which is holistic, top-down, formal, in character. Okay, so I'll go ahead and stop there. There's a lot more I could say. Another part of my project has to do with looking more specifically at, at quantum chemistry and thermodynamics, and arguing that there in particular we see evidence that uh, we, can't be, we can't rely on a bottom-up kind of picture. We need something that we can call chemical form or thermodynamic form that's re irreducible to motions of particles. And again, that I think opens the window even wider towards thinking about ultimately biological form or psychological form in human beings as playing the world. So, Okay, 20, 25-ish minutes for questions, if anybody has any. Um, first off, uh, Nancy Snow yesterday presented a talk on hope and resilience in Aristotelianism. Mm -hmm. I thought, best talk I'm going to go for the year, and it happened so early, <laughs> and you just tied it, so I did happy with what I just heard. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So, I got to representing the philosophy department of, of our university pushed back on you a bit. Yeah. Um, I'm a property emergentist of some stride myself, mm -hmm. and I, I like this kind of observation of hope, but I'm going to give you the kind of general challenge to the emergentist story, which is, aren't you violating some principle of sufficient reason here? Like, you're saying that there's these emergent properties that the root, that the fundamental, in some sense, to our understanding of reality, 
we can't reduce them to the lower level. So, well, then how do we explain their existence? They're just, they're just there. They're necessarily there in some sense. But then we don't have sufficient reasoning. Aristotle for sure thought the principle of sufficient reason held. He could have just been wrong about that. I think he might have just been wrong about it. But mm -hmm. I, I like your take on that kind of violation of that. Of the yeah. Yeah, good. So, so the principle of sufficient reason, just for the sake of everyone else, you know, is, is some sort of principle that says every fact in the world has a kind of sufficient explanation. It's an answer as to why the fact is that way and not some other way, right? And uh, so, you know, we've got, uh, on my picture, you've got all this quantum stuff going on, right? And then in addition to that, you've got all these substantial forms, you know, chemical and thermodynamic forms and biological forms kind of shaping actualizing the quantum stuff in a variety of ways. So, uh, so is, that, is that in any tension with the kind of principle of special reason? Well, it seems to me prima facie it's not really, because it's, it's a problem only if you thought that only the microphysical stuff was, was fundamentally real, right? And anything else had to be explained in terms of it. And that's just what I'm denying, right? So I'm going to say, no, look, what's, what's fundamentally real are the existence of substances with both form and matter. Those are the fundamental things. And so then um, I, I have to use them to explain the quantum stuff, but also to explain how the, how the substances act, interact with each other. So I don't think it's, it's in tension with the principle of sufficient reason. Now, you can still ask, well, you know, well, where do these substances come from? Why do they exist? Well, you can ask that about matter too, right? Where does the matter come from? Why does it exist? And then, you know, we can look for various answers. I would go for a, ultimately a theological answer for that, right? Um, in both cases, right? Um, yeah. I don't disagree with you. Yeah. So a couple things in response to that, an interesting point. So again, I would say uh, it, it would be an error to think that the Aristotelian has the, the world of matter plus some new thing. Because the Aristotelian theory of matter itself is different from yeah. the materialist theory of matter, right? So, so for the materialist, each bit of matter is a kind of self-sufficient, independent part of reality, right? And then you'd ask, well, why add some more of that, right? So this is, this is exactly the, what I call the soul of the gaps problem, right? Once you've got those self-sufficient material entities and moving around and so on, who needs souls, right? Let's just explain it all in terms of those. But if we make the shift to, the, to consider, at least consider the Aristotelian picture, then the material world is not some kind of independent thing on its own. It's just the aspects of these, you know, the aspects of, the, of these complete substances. And so, uh, so then I think this question really is, pulling back from all this, right? We've got two competing theories. 
Which is simpler? It's hard to say, actually, I think. But we still have to ask, you know, which is adequate for the data? Not sort of an argument today, that the material storage is not adequate to the quantum data. So even if the Aristotelian theory was more complicated, it would be worth it to, to solve the, the problems that the, the quantum puzzles that we otherwise can't solve. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. I, I think that's kind of my approach as well. It's like, yeah, it's like, yeah but the, the, data back, like the data backs up some emergentist picture. Yeah, that's right. Like, and, you know, and, then, and, then, you know, and then then we get all the other stuff, you know, agency, consciousness, all that for free, right? Yeah, so that's even better. Right? all of you emerging out of evolution. Yeah, by, yeah. Like, well, that's right. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've argued elsewhere that you can't have evolution without teleology, actually. Yeah. And the very definition, because you can't have organisms without teleology, right? If you just have matter in motion, there's no organisms, there are no species, what's evolution, right? To actually have evolution, you have to have things that belong to species and that have something like a form that makes them members of that species. Um, I mean, I, when people like Millikan, you know, try to reduce it all to physics, you know, they talk about reproduction as though physical, a physical system was reproducing itself. But no system, no physical system produces a physical duplicate of itself, right? Um, so it certainly never happens in biology. What you do is you get creatures of one species producing more creatures of the same species. What is it to be a member of that species? It's to have the right set of functions, right? The right teleology belong to that species. So the very idea of evolution natural selection is basically just a neo-content. You know, presupposes the existence of organisms, which presupposes kind of teleology. So, so what we should really say, I think, if you're a hardcore materialist, and some do say this, yeah, organisms, that's just a myth. There are no organisms. There's no evolution, right? There's just matter in motion. And we might find it convenient to sort of describe it that way, but it's not, we're not, we're not cutting things as they are. So if you want to take biology seriously, I think, you got to go this way. Yeah. So, um the idea of, of the data on Bell's theorem that violates locality. Yeah. So, is non, then if you say that non locality, is, is non locality then another principle? In a sense, that's right. So, so the non locality, I mean, Richard Healy, I think, brings this out first, right? There, there are two ways to go with non locality. Non -locality. You could either say there are these two entities, separate entities, that somehow manage to communicate with each other superluminally. Right? That, would be a, that would be a kind of violation of, of locality. The other way to go would be to say, no there's, no, there's no action at a distance like that, but these two particles are not two separate entities, they're two parts of a single substance, right? Which is expressing itself in a certain way in these two remote places. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you say about the uh, two electrons yeah. Maybe another different example might be that with these kind of Bose condensates. Yeah. Ultra cold atoms. You now have the state of thousands of atoms being in one quantum state. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's the part I didn't get to, actually. Uh, so once you get into these kinds of thermodynamic sort of settings, those uh, condensates, uh, icing, uh, uh, and so on, we get lots and lots of cases now of, of situations where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, where you can't explain what's going on at the holistic level by separately describing the states of each of the parts. That's, that's a kind of, that becomes a common theme in quantum chemistry, quantum thermodynamics. Yeah? 
Yeah, so you had mentioned that the principle of least action, like Leibniz noticed that this still sort of smuggles in teleology in a sort of sense, and you can see even like our sort of modern uh, use of that still is like light traveling the shortest distance between the two pathways. Yeah. And then you had mentioned though that Feynman's sort of sum of all history sort of understanding of quantum mechanics also has, is almost like the modern version of that. Can you sort of lay out for me how that sort of presumes teleology sort of reference to the future? Yeah, so my memory about this is a little fuzzy, um, but uh, all I can remember is, is sort of at an abstract level that um, you, uh, you look at the sum of histories and there are certain pathways, well, the pathways that minimize action in some sense uh, are the ones that get the, uh, the greater weight, the greater amplitude, right? So, so then when, when you see you know, the statistics coming out, right, uh, the greater frequency among those paths reflects in some ways the, the least action character of those paths, right? So it is, it is, it is still that looking forward kind of picture, I think. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, first of all, thank you very much. Thank you for talking, Professor. Um, I, I, I see you to help me kind of cure me of some reductionist habits that I have. Yeah. Uh, just to, just to, um, I'm familiar with the Aristotelian I'm familiar with the Aristotelian account, um, but I always kind of have a little bit of difficulty understanding kind of like what you do with the, um, with the, with the parts that make up the whole. Yeah. So, right. Aristotle, primary substances are physical things like chairs, individual persons, stuff like that. But it's always kind of, uh, something that's always kind of bugged me a little bit is that it's, it's a hylomorphic entity, right? It's in form of matter. Mm -hmm. and, the problem is, and the problem is that the question that I always want to turn to is like, well, you know, what's doing the, uh, you know, what's your head looking here in kind of just, uh, providing thing what it does? It's, it's nature. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty obvious that Aristotle is not going to go the way of the matter because, you know, that's that don't matter. Yeah. It doesn't tell you anything about it. Um, but when you kind of look at the form, it seems that he wants to kind of reject that as well. And indeed, it seems that it's always kind of difficult for me at that point if we say that the form is kind of providing the effect. It's kind of difficult for me to distinguish that from kind of Platonism, where you know there's the idea that kind of partakes in the forms rather than being in a state providing the. Excuse me, distinguishing from that. So perhaps you can kind of help clarify, like, what do we do with these fundamentals? What do we do with these parts? Yeah, okay, good. So there's a number of questions there, right? So. The last point about Plato, um, yeah, it's an interesting point. I don't, I don't myself see Plato and Aristotle being as far apart as, as one might think. I mean, I think there's, uh, you could, a very clever Platonist could duplicate an awful lot of what I'm saying, right? Uh, I mean, I still think in the end, Aristotle's answer is better, where what he does is instead of having just a single form of water, let's say, or humanity, it becomes individualized, right, into each, into each substance. But they still have a kind of quasi-identity with each other because their distinctness is borrowed from the distinctness of the matter. That's another whole other story, right? That's much more a metaphysical talk, uh, which I didn't get into at all. Uh, so let's 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 talk. Let's just sort of focus more on the philosophy of science, philosophy of nature kind of side of it, right? Um, yeah. So um, I'm reminded of I think it was um, let's see, was it Barry Lower or was it um, no? It was. Um, 
oh shoot, somebody else in NYU. A few years back, wrote a piece on British, uh, British emergentism. Maybe you remember who it was. Uh, McLaughlin, Brian McLaughlin, Brian McLaughlin yeah. Uh, and he, he said, you know, this emergentism was great, sounded great, but then we discovered DNA and it's all over, right? So in other words, basically, you know, once, once we discovered biochemistry and we can kind of explain these biological operations in terms of underlying chemical stuff, emergentism is dead, right? The, the reductionism wins again. That, that's, that's, that's the gist of that, that article, I think, back in the late 70s. Um, so, so, yeah, a lot of what I'm trying to do is basically trying to push back against McLaughlin's article there. And I want to say, well, let's look at the chemistry for a bit, right? Let's forget biology for a bit. Let's just look at the chemistry. Uh, what we find there, and this is, I think, really interesting. There's been a kind of boom in philosophy of chemistry in the last 30 years or so. And the overwhelming trend, I think, there is an anti-directionist kind of, uh, anti-directionist trend, which is to say that chemical properties, like the form of a water molecule, can't be explained bottom-up quantum mechanically, right? I mean, the quantum mechanical stuff, throw it into the machinery, you end up with a spherically symmetrical system. There's nothing in the system that, that gives you the particular kind of shape of the water molecule. So what you really need is kind of top-down chemical form saying, okay, you particles around here, you're going to be watery. <laughs> you're going to have a water molecule kind of shapes to them, right? Whereas again, our, our mindset from the modern world is to think, is the tinker toy kind of picture, right? You got a bunch of tinker toy parts, you put them together a certain way, there's your water molecules, right? It's all, it's all bottom up. It's all just kind of construction. But in fact, I think what quantum chemistry is telling us is no, actually, the fact that some substance is watery, right, that it acts in such a way as to be explainable in terms of a molecular structure of a certain kind, that is itself something that is imposed from the whole to the parts and not vice versa, right? And so, and so a fortiori, right? Uh, there's no reason, I think, to think that um, a living organism can be just reduced to the way that molecules are moving around inside the body. That, that that too is going to be, I mean, I, I have the kind of molecules I do in my body, and they interact in the way they do because I have a soul of a certain kind, not, not vice versa. But yeah, it's, it's, it's like I was telling someone over lunch, um, you know, I, I need to somehow get us all somewhere and deprogram us so we stop thinking automatically, right? Uh, it's got to be bottom up. Automatically, it's just finding the particles and putting them together. But again, the, the point is, you know, here's another way to think about it, right? We thought in the 17th century, we don't really understand these little particles very well, but once we get clear about them, we'll have solved everything, right? We'll know, once we know where they are, how they're moving, what their forces are, that will solve everything. And what we discovered in the 20th century, early 20th century was, that as, you get, as you get to these smaller and smaller scales, things become more and more indeterminate and weird and so on, right? Exactly the opposite of what you would have expected from a microphysicalist point of view, but exactly what the Aristotelian would have thought. You're, you're getting closer to prime matter, you might say, right? So you're necessarily getting into the closer and closer to a kind of realm of pure potentiality and further away from the actuality that occurs, you know, at this, this more microscopic level. Maybe, yeah. So I'm trying to pinpoint exactly what we disagree with one another, because I feel like there's some, some LAO, but not, that aren't in um, and I, I want to ask you then, like, yeah. do, do so the, I don't like the word emergence, do, for example, so that's form, probably the point. But, well, do the forms have ontological existence before now? So, like, go back to, like, moments yeah. after the Big Bang, 
Was the form of the chill already there in your view? Because in my view, it wasn't. Well, yeah. The potential for chills to eventually emerge must have been there, the properties of it. So, yeah. so in, in my view, it, it's sort of like, once we reach certain states of complexity, new properties emerge. And I'd say, there are some sets of these properties which constitute the, hum the form of human. Yeah. And that that emerged out of complex interactions of the yeah. lower level stuff. Yeah. It's, but it's not reducible to the lower level stuff. Yeah. And I think you disagree with that. I do, I think. So I used to think that way. So I can understand where you're coming from exactly. But now I don't think that way. So I think that that is still too close to the microphysical story, right? You've kind of gotten yourself away from it, but not far enough yet to really get to the promised land, right? So I don't need to pull you, pull you a little further, right? So in other words, you're still giving a certain priority to the microphysical, right? When the there's this microphysical stuff, and then you put it together a certain way, and then kind of wild stuff starts happening, and you know, isn't that interesting? Uh, I don't want to go that way. So I want to say, um, you know, right from the start, the microphysical was always a second-class citizen, right? It was always just some aspect of some larger and more important and more actual entities. So go back to the Big Bang, right? Uh, we're, again, naturally inclined to think, what happens after the Big Bang? It's like a bunch of photons and maybe some quarks and stuff, and then they get together and organize themselves and soon you have planets and people and so on. I want to say, no, wrong. Uh, after the Big Bang, probably there was just this one gigantic substance, right, which had quantum mechanical aspects to it that we could call photonic and quarky and so on. But it wasn't, it wasn't a bunch of individual quarks and photons. That, that's the wrong picture. It was a thing, right? And then that thing gave birth to galaxy systems, and they gave birth to galaxies, to solar systems, to biospheres, to uh, colonies of one, col one cellular organism, and then finally to microorganisms. So it's actually, in my picture, it's a process of condensation to smaller and smaller things, not accumulation of little things into something bigger, right? Um, now, of course, there could be exceptions to, but to, to that rule, but, but it's, it's again, kind of a salt shift, right? So it's, it's, the, it's the substances that are the fundamental thing, never the microphysical stuff, right? And um, the microphysical stuff just is a way of getting at how these substances are internally structured and how they interact with each other, but they're never in the driver's seat Right? And so there's never room to talk about emergence. I sometimes say what I should talk about is submergence or something like that, whatever the opposite of that is, right? Uh, you, you, get, you get these little sort of boring things by dropping out of larger and more interesting things originally. Uh, yeah, you can wait for a while, yeah. Uh, based on what you say, so it's like, we're a part of this whole substance or we're a, sub, a soup of, of the whole substance? Well, so, yeah, so, I, I mean, there is a danger, if you go this path, to thinking that, you know, after the Big Bang, there was this one gigantic substance, and that's it still, right? There's still just the one substance. And you can go that way. Uh, Jonathan Schaffer, I think, has that kind of picture. Uh, so I don't want to go that way. I agree. I, I, wanna, I want, I want um, people, animals, medium-sized dry goods, and so on, to be first-class citizens, right? Not the whole universe. But I think that, you know, I think there's some argument to saying that that's what happened, right? That, that we no longer have a gigantic homogeneous cloud like we did in the Big Bang. We've now got a much more organized uh, world where things have disaggregated themselves from that hole, right? Solar systems kind of collected themselves from that dust cloud. Planets, ecosystems, individual organisms, and so on. Um, I mean, it, it kind of changes the way I think about things like origin of life, right? 
So instead of thinking, okay, origin of life, bunch of little molecules in a pond, how do I get them to come together to make an organism? Instead, you should think ecosystem or proto-ecosystem, all kinds of cycles and stuff going on. How did that give rise to a smaller system that eventually became a living thing? I think that's actually a more fruitful way to think about it, um, in my, my opinion. So, uh, so yeah, that, that's the thought. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah, I think thinking about it in sort of quantum field theory terms, which I don't really understand, but I have friends who do, that seems like again a really hopeful way to approach it because it's it it, it again it uh, it alleviates from uh, uh, it removes the temptation to over reify the little particles. <laughs> you know, really, it's the field that's the more fundamental thing in that case. I think that's right. Uh, yeah. 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 You mentioned the uh, Aristotelian sort of principle that like. Time is just a measure of change. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering if that's going to be coming in conflict with like the theory of relativity that would mm -hmm. say that time and space are sort of one and the same one and the same thing. And it seems like in order for change to occur, like at least motion, you need to have space, like yeah. in order to for thing to be moved from one position to another position. And so I, I'm wondering if then with the theory of relativity, time is still going to be sort of like more fundamental, I guess, than the motion that it sort of measures. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting question. I don't know enough about the theory to be sure, but my initial, what I could say is this, my hunches anyway are, um, that even in relativity theory, there's a sense in which there's a clear distinction between time and space, right? It's true that they kind of blend together in some ways, but, but there's an important difference between Temporally related events, let's say, and merely spatially related events, even in relativity. Um, and so, uh, so now I still think that that's consistent with the Aristotelian picture that where you have uh, time advancing, right, uh, you know, along a kind of world line, that's being driven by some process of change along that world line. Right? Um, so I think I think they're compatible. But it's an interesting question. I, I, I'm definitely out of my area of comfort there, but I, I don't see initially, at least, why one couldn't do this. And it is, I mean, it's true that uh, the way in which relativity theory gets formulated early on is very much thinking of time as a kind of static dimension, right? The old Minkowski four-dimensional sort of diagrams and so on. That at least tempts us to think of space as just this kind of pre-existing static dimension along which stuff is, is going on. And that's certainly a very underestimated picture. Um, doesn't mean that I don't think an Aristotelian can't use Minkowski diagrams. It's just to say avoid the temptation of thinking that that means that this is some, again, metaphysically fundamental dimension independent of change. That, that, that's what they can't say. Uh, yeah. So, all right, so I wonder if this is a consequence of your account. So, on, on an account like mine, some properties that we have as humans are additive properties of the lower level stuff. And some of these like emergent properties, which the form would fall under. It, it's something like that. But uh, so the, the distinction between additive and emergent. 
Um, so additive would be the properties that are predictable from the lower level stuff, and emergent would be the properties that are not. Okay. Like scoping, yeah. like you can predict which atomic bonds will form, you can't predict which isotope of the atomic bond. Right. Um, so, on my view, I still have some bottom-up causation. Yeah. I also think I can have top-down causation. Yeah. I think I can have both. Yeah. Is your view top-down only? No, no, no. So I think that's not, not a difference, right? So. Because I mean, uh, you know, again, I could um, uh, I could decide to have some chicken for dinner. Or I could decide to eat aluminum can. Okay, there are going to be very different results there, right? And the results will have to be sort of bottom up explained, yeah. right? Uh, that my body can't integrate aluminum in the same way that it can integrate, you know, protein and so on. So yeah, so no, no, I think the picture in, probably in both our stories is going to be one in which there's kind of dialectical interaction between top and bottom. Top-down, bottom-up. Yeah, now, yeah. No, I mean, again, go back to Aristotle, that's pretty clear, right? There is this talk about material causation, there's hypothetical necessities, there's all kinds of things that are going, going bottom-up. Well, I was sort of emphasizing the other thing to say that's not the whole story, right? That's not the complete story anymore. Uh, yeah. I kind of don't like, I'd like to go for kind of a small, uh, small J-Jug here. Um, okay. Uh, Oh, okay. Um, okay, so on the one hand, we have the dualistic picture where mind is separated from body. Yeah. And you have the definition of limitless, it just says, you know, uh, mind is a tooth fairy. Um, yeah. Obviously, because there's a silly definition, it's not going to yield either of those results. So, would right. the position be something like mind is bottom up causation, or it is, well, I don't know, how would you describe mind? Yeah, okay, good, good. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely not going to be dualistic or materialistic, and it won't be idealistic either. So it'll be it'll be some new, uh, distinct option here. Um, so I want to say you know that it is it's a, to think of a, a parallel. I mean, if you know if you know like the uh, um, you know, Strauss and the individuals kind of picture. So you know there are there are things, substances. Some of them are alive. Some of them aren't. Some of the living ones are conscious, and others aren't. Some of the conscious ones are rational, some aren't. And um, you know, it's the conscious, rational substances that do rational things, have experiences, consciousness, and so on. Uh, they are simultaneously, they're physical, right? They have weight, they take up volume, and so on. Uh, and they have various powers that are irreducibly mental powers, right? biological powers, and so on. So you don't you don't you don't need two distinct kinds of entities, right? One having the mental stuff and one doing the physical stuff, because the reason why we did that is that we so impoverished the physical side, right? That it no longer could be home to these kinds of biological and mental powers, right? It could only be matter in motion, right? And so then you either had to go reductionist or you had to create some new kind of domain, and that was a big mistake, my point of view, right? And it was an unnecessary mistake because it turned out well. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to give too hard on the 18th century folks and to my good teacher, Bob Adams, that, you know, if you haven't really thought about quantum mechanics and we haven't discovered it yet, things look pretty bad for Aristotle, right? Uh, little particles seem to be in the driver's seat. Uh, so what do we perform and all that? Now, there's some, there some Aristotelians, you know, especially some Thomas, who all along said, we don't care what science says, we're just going to stick to the old model because we like it. Um, and... I'm not that kind of Aristotelian, right? I think that uh, if, this, if quantum mechanics had turned out differently, uh, I'd say, okay, I'd say, okay, give up on yourself, figure out, let's go with Descartes, I guess, <laughs> find the best option. 
But it turns out that that was wrong, I think. We don't have to. We can have our cake and eat it too. We can, uh, we can uh, integrate human beings into the natural world, right, without human scientific in the slightest bit. That's the hope. All right, that is all the time we have. Thank you guys so much for coming.